to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sunny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I am joined today by James Tager. James is the deputy director of free expression research and policy at PEN America and the primary report author for Made, Made in Hollywood, censored by Beijing. That's what we're talking about today. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, at, at PEN America, Tager has spearheaded major advocacy campaigns on freedom of expression in China and engaged in individual case advocacy for dozens of imprisoned Chinese writers, art, uh, writers artists, and others. He has also led PEN America's previous major research efforts on China, Forbidden Feeds, 2018, uh, Darkened Screen, 2016, and Writing on the Wall, 2016. Uh, Tager previously worked with the International Commission of Jurists, Asia and Pacific Program, first as a Satter Human Rights Fellow, uh, and subsequently as an international associate legal advisor. James, thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk about this, uh, this report. Thanks for having me, Sonny. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so I, you know, I think people kind of intuitively grasp that China is very, very much a, uh, you know, into censoring artists and, and that that has kind of deleterious effects on Hollywood where so much business is done. But I don't think they quite understand the mechanisms by which China uses to kind of enforce that, that, uh, that censorship. And it's, it's, it's interesting reading your report. It, it's, it's not, you know, just a function of like old school censorship in the United States, right, where somebody goes in and cuts things out. It's much deeper than that. It has to do with what gets made in the first place and the economic system by which all of this stuff is allowed. So could you could you explain to my listeners the quota system that China has and sure. how that how that works uh, in terms of letting new movies into the country? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I think the average person has this sort of intuitive understanding of who the censor is, and they they focus on the cutting, as you said, the idea that the censor might say to, to someone, cut these scenes and we'll be fine. One of the things we wanted to talk about in this report, uh, which again, this report is basically our overview and our analysis of uh, China, and by China in this specific context, I obviously mean the Chinese government and the ruling Chinese Communist Party, how they affect Hollywood. Um, and the quota system is part of perhaps the most important top line thing to think about to understand when we understand how Beijing is able to influence Hollywood. And that's that the market, the Chinese box office market for movies is, as we speak, becoming the most important market financially in the world uh, to the point where increasingly access to the Chinese market determines whether or not uh, a movie, including a Hollywood movie, is a success financially. Um, that gives the ruling Chinese Communist Party incredible leverage over foreign um, foreign studios that are trying to bring their movies into uh, into China. Uh, you mentioned the quota system, which is the perhaps the best example. So under relevant trade agreements, basically the Chinese government has committed to allowing only 34 um, foreign films in per year to be allowed in Chinese box offices through a revenue sharing system. There are other ways in, but basically there are only 34 slots for foreign studios to get essentially the best 
revenue sharing deal they can get. They get the you know the highest number of pro- uh, the highest percentage of profits that way. And what this means is that there's only a few spots that are completely controlled by the government. The government gets to decide who gets it. So studios have a lot of pressure on them to make sure that the, the movies they suggest for a potential quota spot go through the censorship process as easily and as painlessly as possible. Right? This is a key example of the broader phenomenon we discussed in the report. It's not just quota movies, but it's we ring the alarm in this report that it is at the point now where it's kind of movies in general, the movies in general that Hollywood makes, they will have an eye towards making sure that their movies do not upset um, Beijing. Uh, and furthermore, that they kind of often actively flatter Beijing uh, in ways that make not just the country, but the government look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're incentivized to do that because every potential roadblock into getting the movie into Chinese theaters could translate into financial losses for them, could translate into actual money. So the more that they're able to sort of self-censor preemptively uh, in order to ensure that it gets a smooth sailing in the censorship system, more and more studios are willing to do that. And that's part of the reason why in this report we wanted to sound the alarm that this is increasingly becoming normalized and seen as just another aspect of the business in the same way that, and we had people say to us, listen, you know, in the studio, you get requests to change things all the time. This is just another aspect of mm-hmm. how we get a lot of requests during, uh, you know, from from funders, from bigwigs, et cetera, during the movie making process. But what we like to point out in this report is, you know, this really isn't just any other request. This is a request from a censor or responding to a censor. And so our fear is that, you know, Hollywood being the world's most sophisticated storytelling center, right? Stories that go out not just to the United States, but to the world. Uh, Movies that Hollywood makes are consumed across the globe. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we might be increasingly reducing what's said in those movies, the plots, the themes, the voices, the characters, the settings, to what pleases or is acceptable to, you know, uh, a government that has one of the world's most sophisticated, overarching, strict censorship systems in the world, you know, that is a net loss in a really significant way for freedom of expression in the filmmaking world. Yeah. I mean, there there, there are kind of two different ways to look at this, right? There, there you know, one thing that you, you guys focus on a little bit in this report is the movies that simply never get made. Um, you know, way, where... Where in the green light process, you know, does all of this break down? And, you know, where, where do we, we see these movies that simply, simply, you know, a, a studio looks at this and says, well, we, we can't make this because we it's not just that we don't want to lose access to the Chinese market for this movie. It's that we don't want to lose access to the Chinese market overall for other movies. We don't want to get blackballed. Right. I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that we tried to take pains to explain in the report is something that is, again, not intuitive for people who are learning about or reading about the issue of Chinese governmental censorious influence in Hollywood. And let's acknowledge this is something that kind of pops up in the public discourse, I say, you know, every six months, right? Right now, especially, we're really in a moment where it's part of the public discourse, in part because of the U.S.-China rivalry and the way that the Trump administration has kind of made this part of their plank uh, to discuss the U.S.-China rivalry. But this is something where you'd see a report uh, talking about a new movie every few months. 
the Top Gun and, jacket. That was yeah. That was the last time I remember. Yeah, it was, it was a key a, example. Yeah. A key yeah. example for those who are listening who don't know the the uh, when the trailer for the new Top Gun broke, uh, some of the patches on Tom Cruise's iconic flight jacket, including you know a patch of uh, the flag of Taiwan, was magically changed into meaningless scribbles. Um, and it's kind of uh, in law we call it the doctrine of revs ipsa loquitur, which is to say. You know, it's just like, well, gee, I think we can kind of all figure out what happened. No one came out and said, we changed this because of China. But it's hard to understand another reason why you would take an actual flag of a nation and make it into something just completely made up, right? So that, I I agree, that was one of the recent examples that kind of popped into public consciousness. But this is something that pops up above the surface, goes back down, pops up above the surface, goes back down iteratively, and has for the past several years. And you're right that one of the things we try to discuss in this report is that The biggest influence of self-censorship especially will never be made visible because it has to do with the movies that are never made in the first place because the person who would write them or direct them or produce them says to him or herself or or hears through the grapevine, come on, there's no way that that China's ever going to allow this movie into its box offices, so what's the point? And we... We talk about that in a few ways. Number one is we compare where we are today with where we were 23 years ago in the year 1997, which we talk about and which is otherwise talked about as kind of a high water mark for uh, Hollywood's willingness to speak critical truth uh, to the powers that be in China. And in 1997, you had three movies that were made. You had, uh, obviously, you had many more movies that were made, I'm saying, in this particular context. Uh, Seven Years in Tibet. You had Kundun, which was another story about uh, Tibet and uh, the Dalai Lama. And you had Red Corner, which not only featured a free Tibet activist, but was uh, a a criticism, which was Richard Gere, but was a criticism of um, China's legal system, essentially. Right. So 1997 was kind of the high water mark where uh, the Chinese government responded by publicly blacklisting the studios that were involved in making the movies and also by kind of putting out this blacklist information uh, about the actors, et cetera, who were involved, the individual people. Mm-hmm. So, so that sent two messages at the same time. Number one, it sent a message that you specifically as a person, the Chinese government may punish you. Um, for being involved in a project that they don't like, which sent a message to the industry um, and a message that we concluded still very much felt today. Every time um, a story goes around of some, say, documentary filmmaker being punished or blacklisted by China, that's a message that is received by the industry in Hollywood as a whole, and it has a chilling effect. Um, Now, we talk about uh, in this report and generally with our analysis, the, gov- the Chinese government wants to send this message more than may actually be the case, right? They, w- they want to scare people off from saying things that they don't like. And this is their way of doing that, sending that message uh, that there may be consequences. And you only have to do it a few times for people to internalize that message. And secondly is the idea that studios could be punished for projects that criticize China, even if those projects never even show in China, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, some of the examples that we talk about in the report of self-censorship seeming to be for the reason of kind of appe- appeasing Chinese censors were on movies that were never likely to show 
in China anyway. We're probably unlikely to be um, greenlit. And and Top Gun's a great example. The newest Top Gun is basically, uh, you know, it's it's a throwback to 80s unapologetic Americana rah-rah, which means it's very unlikely to show uh, in, in China. It may, it may not, but it's this is emblematic of the fact that it's no longer just the point where studios will censor things because uh, in a specific movie that they hope to get into China. It's broader than that. And it's because of the fear, we conclude, that studios, especially as massive, you know, the largest studios are massive multinational corporations, that they have business interests all over the world, including in China, and they have no interest in potentially pissing off uh, one of the world's biggest regulators that affects all of their other businesses for, for a few lines of content in one movie. Yeah. And, and and then there's the other the other kind of mode of this this uh, I, I would I hesitate to even call it soft cultural power because it's really it's 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 harder than that. But the the, uh, the there's there's this very interesting bit in your report about the movie Looper, um, which has uh, which has a kind of out of nowhere pro China subtext um to it and i you know i remember seeing looper in the theater and thinking okay well this is like this is a nice fun movie or whatever it's 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 entertaining um but then uh you know i'm reading this i'm like oh wow so the chinese uh i first off i had no idea that there was a general ban on time travel movies in china which was yep. which is kind of a weird thing I, I i know about some of the other ones for example supernatural films they don't like movies about ghosts for whatever reason and you know obviously political uh, critique and all that is right out, but but time travel movies. So it, could you could you talk a little bit about the the Looper example and what that means for um, for movies that are made and 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 are shown throughout the world? Absolutely, yeah. Looper is a really interesting example. This was a movie that came out in 2012, um, and the first you know the previous draft of the movie, which is a time travel movie about. Bruce Willis is the older time-traveling assassin. He fights his younger self, which is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, and it was supposed to be set between Kansas and Paris. Then um, this Beijing-based media agency, which is called DMG Entertainment, bought into the movie uh, and said, you know, let's change this all. From Paris, let's set it all in China. Um, and at least part of the rationale appears to be uh, oh, you know, we are more likely to have a good showing in China if we make this kind of a, you know, a, a China-focused movie. But more than that, the the idea apparently was, gee, this will make China look like the center of the world in the future. Won't that be something that really appeals to be Beijing bureaucrats, right? Um, I think it's really important, that, and this is a good point to note it, I think it's important for, uh, to establish that for the purposes of us and our analysis and our report, PEN America being a freedom of expression, artistic expression advocacy organization, it's not that they decided to change a setting from Paris to China in and of itself. That is our concern. The concern is they did it at least in part to appeal to government regulators whose job is to censor. Right. That's really the crux of what we're mm -hmm. talking about. So when you look at some of these things devoid of context, my goodness, they moved the setting from France to China. Um, another movie example that uh, I talk about is The, the Meg, which was um, the big shark movie with Jason Statham. <laughs> the book, it was set off the coast of Japan. The movie was set off the coast of China. Now, you know, we're not saying that somehow it's like, oh, my goodness, you Japan is objectively a better place to set this movie than China. What we're talking about is the idea of, of, gee, the way that censorship 
worms its way into all of these decision-making processes so that you're, main, you're mainstreaming the idea of anything that has the, has the benefit of appealing to censors uh, makes, makes it more likely for, for that choice to be made for the movie. That's really where we're focusing on our, our analysis. And in Looper, I mean, the, the, uh, one of the top DMG people said explicitly, well, we think that the, the Chinese government will love this because it makes them look so good in this future vision we create of them. And in fact, another one of the DMG entertainment executives, Chris Fenton, he recently put out a book uh, called Feeding the Dragon, where he walks mm. people through how he's in the room with others talking about, well, we think this, you know, we think if we do it this way, it will appeal more to Beijing. If we do it this way, it'll appeal less to Beijing. So this is the way that censorship considerations, and again, we use the term censorship, but we're kind of talking about censorship is half of it. And what you said is soft power slash propaganda, the way that the, the, the Chinese government is essentially be able to positively insert its own vision for how it wants itself depicted uh, is the other aspect of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and in Looper, it's very, uh, it's very clear. I mean, there is a scene where one of the main characters says to the protagonist, I am from the future, you should move to China. Um, and so the messaging and how that benefits Beijing is, is really clear yeah. in that movie. Um, you know, we don't get into any analysis of what that means for the aesthetic choice, right? There's, there's no way we can be like, and it would have been a better movie in France if, 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 if than if it had been set in China. But sure. we can say, well, it looks like you know at least part of the rationale for why they made this major change was because it would would make them look better in the eyes of censors, and that's you know once you get to that point, you are mainstreaming censorship into the creative process in a way that has. Uh, that has a whole catalog of effects, some of which will never be visible to the average viewer of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I said, I had I had no idea. I just assumed it was okay. Well, they're going to set part of the movie in Shanghai, and the, yeah. the you know that makes that makes some sense. Um, so this is good to know, and I think it's good for people to keep in mind when they're watching um, when they're watching these movies. I, y y y the the co production, the joint venture angle here, I think, is another interesting one because. I mean, Hollywood is very much in the business of mitigating risk, right? It's it's all about trying to put as little money into a project as possible to get the biggest return. And one way they they have kind of discovered to do this is partnering with Chinese companies. I mean, there's there's tons of co-financing ventures. I mean, if you if you watch the credits, uh, the the you know the pre-roll credits of a movie these days, it's you see a lot of STX, a lot of Tencent, a lot of Alibaba, and that money is essentially Chinese money that's coming into the Hollywood system um, in order to you know, A, again, mitigate risk, but also B, increase the opportunity of access to the Chinese markets, right? Right. right. Yeah, the, the joint production model, which is sometimes also referred to as the co-production model because um, joint productions are a type of co-production, uh, basically is a legalized model under the, under the Chinese movie-making system where a foreign studio, for the purposes of our report, Hollywood Studios, uh, a foreign studio partners with a domestic studio. They make a film together. The issue is that under the relevant rules and laws and bylaws of the joint production model, um, the government censor, the Chinese government censor, essentially becomes a third partner in the production process. 
Um, you know, it is explicit that complete collaboration with uh, with China's censorship strictures is required under the model. It's basically it's hard baked into the formula, um, and this is incredibly frustrating. Uh, I think it's frustrating for filmmakers. It's certainly frustrating for us as free expression analysts talking about it because, you know, us organizationally, we're devoted to the idea of intercultural communication. And if it weren't for the context in which the joint production model allows the censor in through the front door, I think we would say, you know, listen, we're all for collaboration and, and, and we don't want to throw the baby out in the bathwater and say, you know, Hollywood should not be working with Chinese filmmakers. But right. what we are saying... Right is well under this model it's like don't get it twisted it is it is built in that censorship will be part of this process from day one until the day the movie comes out and we have several movies that help kind of give examples of that you know we talk about how uh we talk about the several in the movie loop uh, several in the report looper is one of them but abominable is is one that comes to mind which was this joint production which kind of made the rounds in terms of publicity because there was one short kind of map scene where it showed um what's called the nine dash line yeah. on the map yeah. which is uh basically china's claim uh, over the South China Sea, a claim that's disputed by its neighbors um, and, in fact, was litigated under an international tribunal. Um, but we, we say in the report, you know, I guess Hollywood magic in this example trumps international law. And mm -hmm. it is just a small example of how we can tell that Beijing's interest in making the, these movies and being involved in these co-productions co especially is certainly not the artistic merits of the movie, right? It is a specific, specific political agenda that they are more than willing to push through film. We have a part in this report where we basically talk about uh, sort of the discourse power, the sharp power instincts uh, of Beijing and how they see film as a particularly powerful political medium. And in 2018, actually... Um, power over film censorship was reshifted and given almost entirely to what's called the uh, the Central Propaganda Department, which is a wing of the Chinese Communist Party. It's basically, it's their mm -hmm. PR division, mm -hmm. right? So when we look at joint productions, we really are talking about, oh, and the PR, the PR people for the Chinese Communist Party, they'll be part of this process too. Yeah. And these, in, in this report, in Abominable is just one example, we give little illustrations of the ways they can use that um, for their spif specific political agenda and messaging. Yeah, the, the nine dash line uh, section was interesting too, because you know, uh, I believe it was at Malaysia that ended up banning, it, Malaysia banned the movie yep. uh, more or less because Hollywood wanted to play ball with China. And you get into this weird situation where you have kind of competing semi-authoritarian to authoritarian regimes, you know, uh, playing off of one another. It's very, it's all very, you know, Machiavellian in a, in a, in a certain way. Yeah, that is an example where that's absolutely the case. But of course, we talk about other examples in the report where it's less about, you know, making territorial claims than about portraying themselves and particularly portraying Chinese governmental figures in a really um, 
positive light in a sort of you know if you're if you're in the Chinese government you can do no wrong type of light and that obviously is something that has mm -hmm. less implications for international affairs than it does in terms of just the message that Beijing is sending a to its own populace and b to you know people across the globe yeah the transformers age of extinction uh was was one where you know there's there's a great there's an extended set piece you know uh, where the Chinese government, I believe, is protecting Hong Kong yep. from attack. And, and, which, and at the again, time, there came, were massive pro-democracy right, exactly. protests in Hong Kong. Right. Yeah, so the messaging uh, there is, is you know, very clear and, and deliberate. Yeah. Uh, in, your, in your conversations with artists and filmmakers and writers, you know, I, without naming any names, obviously, I don't, nobody wants to get in any trouble here. But what, you know, what, what were some of the recurring... Um, complaints or concerns that you heard that you heard from folks as you were as you were talking uh over all of this yeah well first let me make explicit something you you just noted um which is that a lot of the people who spoke to us for this report did so on background or anonymously uh you know or in ways that they were not attributed um because of their concern their professional concerns over this i mean this is just seen as something where there's no benefits and there's only drawbacks to speaking about this publicly if you are in the industry. Either, you know, either because you are concerned about retaliation from the Chinese government or you're concerned about retaliation from studios who do not want their dirty laundry out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were... I mean, the interesting thing is, and part of the reason why we hit so many points in this report is because different people had different things to say. Um, you know, some people were very concerned about the quota, which we, we just talked about, and said, really, the, you know, the quota is one of the biggest issues here. If there was no quota, there would be far less pressure on studios to try and get their tentpole movies into China, and there would be less pressure to censor tentpole movies. Mm -hmm. uh, others were less concerned about the quota and thought, oh, my goodness, you know, that the quota, look at fixed fee um, opportunities. You can get around the quota. Is it really that big a deal? We had, as I mentioned earlier, we had some people who who um, said, you know, listen, this is just another example of studio politics, right? You know, we're, we may not be happy about it, but there are many other things where where we receive requests that may interfere with our artistic independence that we're all, we're also troubled by, and others who took the other tack and they, you know, and said, no, this is something that we're really concerned about, and it's affecting what people can see. Uh, in movies, not just in China, but across the world. And, and um, so I think there's, there's a variety of opinions on it, yeah. uh, which is, of course, is logical. But obviously, overall, um, we conclude that there is concern uh, amongst people in the industry about what, you know, what they can say and what there isn't. And again, um, a lot of this will just, it will be invisible. This is a phenomenon as self-censorship almost always is, that goes on beyond closed doors, um, that goes on in small private group meetings, that goes on between colleagues that have no interest in sharing their observations outside of, uh, uh, of their, their immediate kind of collegial circle. And, and thus, it's, it's often invisible. And in fact, it may even occur just within one person's mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things we launched into in the report is we talk about the Sony hack, which was uh, uh, people may li listening may remember a few years ago, presumed to be in retaliation for Sony's um, making the film, uh, the interview. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that was interesting because it allowed us a peek behind the curtain that we normally do not get. I mean, there were emails between Sony executives saying, essentially saying, China's really hassling us with the censorship on this one, right? That's a comment that they can make candidly to each other that they do not make outside of their collegial circles. So those are uh, indicative of some of the difficulties in discussing this in an honest and open way. And in fact, you know, it's part of why for our conclusions and our recommendations for the report, we center a lot of it around the need for more publicity, more transparency. We call for disclosure of these things, um, in part because, I mean, if you don't have it out in the public, it can't be discussed publicly. And if you keep it behind closed doors, it will only ever be addressed behind closed doors, if addressed at all. Self-censorship thrives in obscurity, and sunlight remains the best disinfectant. Uh, and you know, this is something that we've heard a lot about. Some people think it's a good idea. Some people don't. To have something along the lines of a disclosure mechanism where Hollywood as an industry, and we would need action from the biggest studios collectively on this to make this happen, mm-hmm. but where they disclose, you know, here are the censorship requests we've received from, and we believe it should be from anywhere in the world. You know, some type of disclosure mechanism that gives more visibility to this and allows the public to understand what's happening. Um, sure. Because, you know, we worry that if unless we have more of a public conversation now, it's not an issue that's going to go away, regardless of how much Hollywood insiders may wish it does. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it is it's a really tricky thing because the studios obviously have no incentive to to push back against China. I mean, the, the only reason they're doing this is for access to the Chinese marketplace. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. You know, I, I I don't really see a role for the American government here. What would you know without? I don't I don't see how the American government could push back on this without being essentially just as bad as China in terms of telling them what they can say and what they can't say. I mean, is this is this is it a is it a situation where it's basically just down to the consumer to you know be aware of what's happening, be educated, and and to say, well, I, you know, I I don't know that I can support a thing like this. Yeah. We definitely talk about in the report um, something along the lines of where we talk about a couple of the recent legislative proposals that have been made by U.S. policymakers on this uh, and analyze them uh, a, a bit more in depth. But we overall, we conclude and we say this is part of our, our messaging to studios on this. It's like, listen, it is better for studios to take action on their own on this than mm-hmm. to wait for U.S. regulators to step right. in uh, because, you know, when it comes to legislation on, say, Hollywood, our biggest concern is almost always uh, we don't want to th- we don't want to damage free speech in order to try and save it. Right. Uh we can't, as a society, we cannot let our desire to make sure that Hollywood or other artistic industries uh, are free from from uh, censorious pressure from other governments. We can't use that as an excuse to just replace it with censorious pressure from right. a domestic government, from our own government. Um, and that is part of why we say what we need from Hollywood now is unified action, not only because of its pre- the pre-existing kind of need to take this on, but because it's like Hollywood will be much better off, everyone will be much better off if they take action on this issue on their own. Um, and yeah. you're right that, I mean, part of the reason we call for publicity and transparency is so the consumer can at least have more information and more tools to decide if this is, you know, to decide how angry they are on it. 
um, and to you know and, and to engage publicly in that conversation. But um, you know, we think that overall this is an issue where we need more soul soul searching from Hollywood, and we believe that there are. are Ideas that Hollywood as an industry can adopt, principles they can adopt uh, that that would help on this. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things we we really take points pains to discuss in the report is Hollywood as an industry and a lot of its studios and a lot of its kind of trade groups, etc. I think enjoy a reputation within the United States as being willing to criticize the government, being willing to criticize the powerful, being willing to speak truth to power. That's something we applaud. We're just asking for that same standard to be applied to the rest of the world. And when you compare, we feel, the willingness of Hollywood at large to criticize an American presidential administration or to criticize a law that they see as potentially impinging on their freedoms, um, and you compare that to the ink that has been spilled by Hollywood or the lack thereof on this issue in terms of Chinese censorious pressure, we think there's a mismatch. And so in some level, we're just asking actually to globalize the approach that Hollywood has taken towards defending its own artistic freedom domestically to extend that to how it feels towards the rest of the world. I think that's a great uh, place to leave off. I, uh, that's that is a that's a great summation. Um, thank you, James Tager for uh, from Pen America for joining me on the show today. Uh, if you have any more questions or, or concerns, you should really check out the report. Uh, just just Google it, Pen America, uh, China. It's 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 fascinating reading. If you're if you're interested in the business of Hollywood, you cannot understand the business of Hollywood without understanding the business of Hollywood uh, and their involvement in China. It's a, it's a, it's a must read. Um, so uh, I, I heartily recommend it to everybody. And uh, thanks again to James. We will be back next week with another edition of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm.